You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, go to sojournmontrose.com. It can also be dangerous in this time for us to look back at the year in review and kind of size up our list of accomplishments, the goals that we've achieved, and also size up all the mistakes that we've made. And we have a tendency to define ourselves based on that. Uh, both corporately and individually, we have a tendency to, if we had a good year, maybe um, ministry went well, maybe we uh, were very responsible financially, maybe things were good with our family, maybe we got a promotion at work, or, or corporately we could look at, at a lot of the good things here at Sojourn, we could look back and very honestly say that 2014 was a great year. Uh, we've accomplished and, and we've seen the Lord do so many of the goals that we set for the year. Uh, we've seen coworkers and friends and family members and strangers come to know the Lord through Jesus, and for that we rejoice. We've seen disciples made. We've seen parishes multiplied. At the beginning of 2014, we had two parishes. Going into 2015, we have four, soon to be five, and soon to be six, so that's good. We've seen leaders developed. We've crushed the budget. Like All of these things have been really good. And we have a tendency when things are good uh, to look at them and to take credit for them and to move into the next year expecting these things to continue happening based on our ability to accomplish and based on our ability um, to achieve a certain amount of efficiency or righteousness or whatever you want to call it. And, And maybe personally this year was really rough for some of us. Maybe it was marked by secret sin. Maybe it was marked by family struggles, maybe it was marked by uh, a lack of understanding, Uh, maybe it was marked by a dark period in your faith where really every day was just a struggle to believe the things that you once held to so firmly. And then we we can take that and we can try to define ourselves based on that. And we can move into 2015 in this place of shame and in this place of embarrassment and in a place of hopelessness. And so really the goal this morning is that we as a church both individually and corporately, would establish ourselves firmly in the gospel identity we've been given in Christ. And that we would move into the new year with a hope based on that identity. That we would understand who we are in the gospel and that we would move into the new year based completely on who God has called us rather than who we have called ourselves based on what we're able to achieve or unable to achieve. And so with that, we'll start in verse 10 of Isaiah 61. And Isaiah 61, is, verse 10, is really difficult for me. Really, I spent probably uh, the majority of my time preparing for this morning uh, really wrestling with this verse. Uh, because when you read the text, especially when you read the prophets, one of the first questions you have to ask yourself is, who is speaking here? Who's the voice that we're listening to? And there was no consensus here. Um, Some people said this is the voice of the Messiah who we as a New Testament church founded in Jesus would would say that is Jesus. And so we could look at this and say this is the voice of Jesus. And that's where I found myself originally as saying this is definitely the voice of Jesus. And as we read it, we can see why I would say that. It says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. We have worship, and we see in the New Testament, specifically the Gospels, historical accounts of Jesus, the Son, worshiping the Father. And then, and then it goes on to say, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. And Jesus did the work of salvation, meaning that he saved a people from slavery into freedom. 
And, and so being clothed in the garments of salvation, we could easily understand that in that he was dressed for the action of doing the work of saving. And, and that's true. And then it goes on to say he is covered in a robe with righteousness. And, and we obviously, as the church, we would esteem Jesus to be holy and completely righteous. We would consider him to be blameless and without blemish. And so, so for him to say he has covered me with the robe of righteousness, we could understand that to be the voice of the Messiah. And then it goes into this analogy of saying that he has done so, he has clothed me with salvation and righteousness in the same way that a bride and a bridegroom prepare themselves for the wedding day and for the covenant of marriage. And, and, and we can understand that to be Jesus because we understand Jesus to be the, the most glorious bridegroom and we as the church being the bride. But then we could also say, no, this is not the voice of Jesus. This is the voice of the people of God. This is the voice of the church, the, the future redeemed people of God. And we can understand that and that they're, they're worshiping because of what God has done for them. They're worshiping because the Lord has clothed them in garments of salvation, meaning they were once enslaved and now they are free. And we as the church would resound with that and say, that's true of us. And, and that we're robed in righteousness because the Lord has gifted us with righteousness through Jesus. And so we could say that's true of us and, and, and that we are the, the bride in, in this analogy of marriage. And so we could say that this is definitely something that the church is saying. And, and I was frustrated by that because I, I wanted a clear answer. And I had scholars saying, this is the voice of the church. This is the voice of the people of God. And other scholars saying, no, this is the voice of the Messiah. And so I got really frustrated, and I called my sister, and I said, won't you just tell me who's speaking here? And she said, Cole, maybe it doesn't matter as much as you want it to matter. And so we're going to sit there with this problem of voice, and then we're going to go to Galatians, and we're going to come back to the problem. So go with me to Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 3. It says, in the same way, we also, we being the church, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. It says we as the church, before this work that Jesus has done for us, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And we can understand elementary principles of the world to mean a few things. We can understand it to mean the principles of, of the society. So for the Jews, this would be the law of God, the principles of God based on the law. Or for the Gentiles, social norms and customs and, and a standard of morality that was expected. And also elementary principles, meaning uh, principles in, in a spiritual sense that are not God. And so we could understand that to be uh, a, demonic, uh, a demonic influence. And what I'm not saying is that um, all people are like possessed by demons before they know Jesus. Like we can read the text clearly and say that that is not the case, but that there is that influence. We can obviously say that that, that is true. And so we were slaves, moving into verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, meaning when God saw it fit in his sovereignty and his wisdom, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And so this is what we celebrated this past week at Christmas, that God became a person under the law to save people who were under the law and could not fulfill it, right? This is where we get into the good news of the gospel. In verse 5, it says that he did this to redeem those who were under the law 
so that we might receive adoption as sons. So formerly, church, we were slaves. Formerly, you were a slave. But because God became a man under the law that you could not fulfill, now you are a son and now you are a daughter. And so identity here has completely shifted. The identity of being owned within a household as a slave and and then being adopted into a household as a son or as a daughter is completely different. Before you were defined by being a slave. You were defined by being unable to achieve righteousness on your own. You were defined by being unable to fulfill yourself in your own way. You were a slave to uh, trying to fight for joy that you could not obtain. And now you've been adopted through, through your faith and through the work of Jesus into the family and the household of God. And then it goes on to say, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. And it's very important for us to understand the word son here within the text and why Paul is using it. We were adopted as sons, and then it says that God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. And so this is where we really establish our identity, in that formerly we were slaves, and now we are sons and daughters in the same way that Jesus is the son. In the same way that Jesus is the son, you are a son if you have faith in him. You're you're not considered to be less worthy of God's love and affection than Jesus even. You are considered to be equally worthy of his love and his affection and his care because of this good thing that God has done for us in adopting us. And so church, we could really go on to say that all of the good things that are true and and good about the people of God are only true and good about the people of God because they were first true and good about Jesus. And also we could say that Jesus as a man, all of the things that were good and true about him are likewise true about his, his children of the church. And so we really need to believe this morning that our identity is as a son or as a daughter of God the Father in the same way and in the same esteem as Jesus is the son of God. This is not to place ourselves in the place of kingship that Jesus is or in the place of being equal with God, but in terms of God's affections for us, it is the same. When Jesus was baptized and the spirit descended and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, when you were baptized, God the Father and God the Spirit likewise resounded and said, this is my son, this is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. Oh, that we would believe that this is our identity. Because if we don't get this, church, if we don't believe that our identity is as a son or daughter who is cared for and loved and cherished by God the Father in the same way that Jesus is as son, then this next year is going to be very difficult. Because we're going to establish for ourselves idols based on what we can and cannot accomplish. We're going to define ourselves based on our workload, our ministry. We're going to define ourselves based on our financial um, 
highs and lows. We're going to define ourselves based on our relationships, our families. And those things at some point are not going to fulfill you. And those things at some point are going to fail you. But if you define yourself and if we corporately define ourselves as sons and daughters who are fully loved and cared for and cherished by the Father, then this next year will be very exciting. Because once we understand our identity, then we can go back to Isaiah 61 and and really do the work there and, and get through this text with a hope for what is to come. So in verse 10, we have this problem of voice. Who's speaking here? Is it the son or is it the church? And I think the answer is yes. I I think the answer is yes because if these things are true absolutely of the Messiah Jesus and the Messiah Jesus became a human under the law to redeem humans under the law and to invite them into the household of God with his very identity, then they are likewise true of you, the church. If it is true that the Lord Jesus greatly rejoices in the Lord and his soul shall exalt in his God, then we also as the church will greatly rejoice in the Lord and our souls will exalt in our God. If it is true of Jesus that he was clothed with the garments of salvation to do the work of saving, then it is also true of us, the church, that we are clothed in the garments of salvation as people having been saved and to do the work of allowing God to save more. If it is true of Jesus that he is robed in righteousness, that he is clothed in perfection, that he is defined by his perfect obedience, then it is also true of us, church, that we are clothed in robes of righteousness and that we are defined by Jesus' perfect obedience and we are defined by his perfect submission to the Father. And if it is true of Jesus that he carefully and thoughtfully and patiently adorned himself for the joining of him and his people in this covenant that is identity changing that we liken to marriage, then it is also true that we are part of that covenant. So let us establish ourselves in this identity as the people of God, defined by God the Son, not defined by our actions. If we were defined by our actions, more specifically, if I were defined by my actions, it would be a very hopeless story that I would tell you. If I were defined by my actions, you could say I'm a liar. You could say that because I've had hate that I'm a murderer. You could say that I'm a pervert. You could go on and on and on and list these really negative attributes to my name. But because I'm defined by Christ, I am wholly loved and accepted by God the Father. I'm defined by the perfect obedience of Jesus. In fact, it's my identity. I'm cherished as a bride is cherished by a bridegroom. And it has nothing to do with my actions. And so let's understand that identity and move forward into verse 11. We've established that God has begun and will continue to establish for himself a people defined by his very nature in God the Son, Jesus. And then it goes on to say, For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. This is a promise that we have to take hold of moving into 2015. The promise is that 
the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Meaning that in his people that he has already redeemed and in the people that he will and has promised to redeem, righteousness and praise will sprout up before all the nations. Part of the nations is Montrose. Righteousness and praise will sprout up here in Montrose because the Lord has promised that it will be so. Not because we're good at ministry, not because we have good systems in place, not because we have good deacons and elders. No, it's because God has promised that that will happen. And so it will. As Marshall says, almost every week, what God has decreed will come to pass. Let's take hold in that. And then in response to this good news that righteousness and praise will shout up before all the nations, Isaiah cries out in chapter 62, verse 1, For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. Oh, that we would resound like Isaiah and say that I will not be silent. For the sake of Montrose, I will not be silent. For the sake of Houston, Texas, I will not be silent. For the sake of my family and my friends and my coworkers, I refuse to be silent until righteousness goes forth as brightness and salvation as a burning torch. Because our identity is as a people who were slaves and who have been redeemed and adopted by God as sons and daughters. Why would we be silent about that? Why would we be silent about that? Part of being freed from slavery is now we have the freedom to proclaim it. Now that we have the freedom to proclaim our great emancipator, Jesus, who has purchased us out of slavery with his blood, let's not be silent. Verse 2 says, the nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. Church, this is a promise that, that God has over his people, and that is that the nations shall see your righteousness, and, and the kings will see your glory. And, and the beautiful thing about this is Before, when you were a slave, you had no righteousness. And even now, in your your having been saved actions, you still have very little righteousness. But you're not defined by that. You're defined by the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And as we go forth and refuse to be silent for the sake of the people around us, people will see the righteousness of Jesus in us. And they will see the glory of God that has saved us. It's not that we will be made much of, but it's that God will be made much of in us because he established an identity that is completely found in him, in his people. And then verse 3 says, You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. And in verse 2, it said, you'll be called by a new name. And so let's skip to verse 4, where that's explained. You, church, you redeemed son or daughter of God, shall no longer be termed forsaken. Slaves are forsaken. But you're not a slave anymore. And your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. And 
the Lord, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And your bridegroom, and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, hear this church, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. I'm not convinced we believe this, because if we believed this, I think our countenance would be lifted. Just this past weekend, my cousin got married, and at his, at weddings, really my favorite thing to do is right as the, the doors are open or the curtain is removed and the bride in all of her beauty steps forward and begins to walk down the aisle, I love to look at the groom's face. Because in that, all of the time that he's spent with her and all of the pursuit that he's run after her and, and really all that is to come is all summed up in the way that his eyes begin to tear up and an uncontrollable smile stretches from ear to ear because his delight is in his bride. How much more is the perfect bridegroom, our God, delighting over us? He has not begrudgingly made a covenant commitment to us, but with joy he has pursued us. He has loved us, he has romanced us, and he has given us a new name just as a bride receives a new name upon her wedding day. And, and so we've established that we are a people who are not defined by our actions. For those of us in the room who are believers, if you're not a believer in the room, I would invite you to consider um, that defining yourself based on your actions will only fail you. It will only lead to hopelessness. It will not fulfill you. You will not experience joy. You will maybe experience fleeting and temporary moments of happiness, but you will not experience something that is sustainable and surely not eternal. But the Lord God, in his love for his people, became a person under the law to fulfill it to perfection so that we might be redeemed and given that identity of righteousness. So if you're not a believer in the room, I would invite you to come and to receive the righteousness of God that is to be found only in Jesus. And then join with us, church, us the church, as we move into 2015, founded completely in this identity, and trusting that the promise that God is going to cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations will be true as we, founded in our identity, refuse to be silent. No more should our coworkers wonder if we're Christians. No, we should love them fervently that they would know that, that the righteousness given to us in Jesus would be made known to them. No longer should our community not be sure about who we are. No, it says that our glory will be made known even to kings. And that glory is the glory of Christ given to us. So let's move into 2015 founded completely in that identity. And, and so the practical application of what we've discussed here is first and foremost, believe the gospel. Believe this. Understanding in your head that you have an identity that is not founded in your works, in your ability or inability to achieve righteousness and understanding in your head intellectually that you are a cherished and beloved bride of 
the bridegroom, Jesus, it's not enough. It won't sustain you. It won't, it won't comfort you in a time of need to just know that. Oh, but that we would take heart and believe it. That we would really believe that our identity is completely apart from our inability to achieve righteousness, but our identity is completely in that Jesus perfectly achieved it in our stead and purchased us with his blood and adopted us as sons and daughters. We need to believe that, and then we need to worship as a people redeemed and adopted. Because in our worship, in our making much of God, in our offering of thanks, that is where we begin the mission of God. That is where we begin resounding with Isaiah that we will not keep silent. Because as a family, we have to first get loud as a family. We have to first resound in praise and in worship as a family. Our second is that we should pray. And we should pray with the expectation that God will bring about his plan to save many through his people. See, the good news is that God has established us as, a, us as a people defined by Christ so that he could establish for himself a larger people who are defined by Christ. We are not the end. And, and just as God rejoices over us as a bridegroom does over the bride, so will he rejoice over those who will be saved in 2015 as a bridegroom does over the bride. And so let's pray with the expectation that God has promised this will happen and that he will begin to do it even more. Let's ask him to do that quickly. Let's, let's make haste with our prayers. Third, we should obey. We should obey knowing that our identity is already as one who is perfectly obedient. <laughs> Obedience is really, really hard, and it's a lot harder if you don't believe you're defined by obedience. <laughs> obedience is really hard when you are just consistently covered in the shame of your past sin. But when you recognize that you are defined by the obedience of Christ and that it is actually out of your character and out of your nature to sin, then obedience is a lot easier. Child of God, you are no longer defined as a sinner. So don't act like one. Don't no longer submit yourself to the yoke of slavery. You've been freed. And, and the last thing we should do is, is cast away all of our idols. All of these idols that we look to for satisfaction and for identity, that we look to to define ourselves by, let us soberly assess ourselves as people defined by God and his righteousness and cast those things away. Um, preparing for this, idols were revealed in my life. Even yesterday, I, I sat and talked with one of my best friends and said, I just, this idol has just been revealed to me and I, just, I need you to pray over me because I, I don't want to worship this any longer. I'm not defined as someone who does. I'm not defined as someone who submits myself to things less than the God of the universe. Who, who worships and puts my hope in things less than the perfectly atoning cross of Christ. I'm not defined as one who puts my hope in things that are less than a God who became a man, died in my stead, and then conquered death in resurrection. 
Because if I know and believe that those things are true, I would be such a fool to worship anything else and to put my hope in anything else. And so this morning, you may have come in here weary from the year past and burdened by the year ahead. And let me tell you, there is rest for you. There is rest in this good news that you don't have to be weary because all of the things that happened that were maybe very difficult, those things don't define you anymore. Those things cannot put you in a box and label you as wretched or as shameful or as sinful or as inefficient or unproductive or bad at your job or communicates poorly in relationships. Those things don't define you. And in the year ahead, let us hold fast to this identity that we were slaves. And let us look back on that time of slavery only with rejoicing because we are thus no longer. We are now sons and daughters who are rejoiced over by the Lord God. I'm going to read the end of verse 5 again that we might believe it. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So shall your God rejoice over you, sojourn Montrose. Not because of the things that you've accomplished this year. Not because we have grown in membership. Not because we have been faithful in giving. Not because we have multiplied parishes but simply because we are now defined by God's Son in Jesus who he perfectly and lovingly and excitedly rejoiced over. These are my children, the Lord says, in whom I am well pleased. Let's go into 2015 knowing that the Lord is pleased with us and move forward as a people who refuse to be silent knowing that that is true. Let's pray.